Please excuse my voice. Um, I, uh, uh, I was in hospital, I'm sure that most of you know this, uh, for about nine weeks. And when I expressed to my wonderful surgeon my fear about not being able to speak again, he laughed and he said, you've had a tube down your throat for six weeks. We've ripped it to shreds. It's amazing you can talk at all. And then he gave me this wonderful advice. Talk as much as you want. It'll be good for your, uh, for your throat. So I will try to limit what I've got to say. Um, <clears throat> I believe personally that I'm here because of answer to prayer. And I believe that God has spared my life for a reason. Actually, two reasons. First of all, I think for my family. And uh, I have to say, pay tribute to Annabel, Andrew, Becky, EJ, and my parents for um, the way that they cared for me during that ill period. Um, and secondly, I think the second reason is for what I would call my spiritual family, especially uh, the people here in St. Peter's. And I believe that the key thing I have to do, people keep saying, oh, you've got to slow down and you've got it, right? Okay, right, forget it. It's a waste of breath. Just keep saying that. It's called nagging. And it's like a constant dripping, and I'd prefer you to go and dwell on the corner of a roof than uh, just do that. But there is one thing, there's a lot of things I shouldn't do, but there is one thing I'm absolutely convinced I've got to do, and that is to bring the Word of God to you. Now, for some of you, that's a cliche, and that's something that you just say, yeah, yeah, right, that's what you do. That's what we expect to hear in a church. For others... What does that mean? It doesn't make a lot of sense. It could be that preaching is just someone who likes the sound of their own voice and wants to tell people what to do. It could be that you think no one has the right to claim truth. And in the words of the greatest band in the history of the universe, the Manic Street Preachers, or at least the best name band, um, in one of their albums they entitled it, This is my truth, tell me yours. So a lot of people don't like the idea of our culture of someone standing up and saying, this is true. It may be as well that you come to the Bible, this book, and you think it's a dead word, a mere history book, and that preaching is usually equivalent to a lecture. Now, I've been listening to a lot of preaching, um, thankfully, through the wonders of uh, YouTube and uh, MP3s and so on. And sometimes, if I had any hair left, well, a little bit, I'd want to pull the rest of it out because it sounds so dry and it sounds like a lecture. But that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be God speaking to us. There are some Christians who set the spirit against the word, implying that the Bible is out of date and we need fresh expressions of the spirit today. But this book is the word of God. And what it means is is that it is God speaking to us. And that's why I'm excited about being here. Not so that you can listen to me, but that you can hear what God has to say. So we're going to look at uh, a passage in 1 Peter. We've been looking in 1 Peter at night. Uh, Apparently I haven't been here at night. Um, And I want to read the first part of what we're going to look at. We're going to look at three parts. If we could put the first part up on the screen... Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold 
that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now, there's, even in that one small section, there is so much that is packed in to that. Uh, we won't be able to go into it all, but I hope you'll see something of the, the wonder of it. A number of years ago, I preached through the book of Job. And during the middle of that, I had to do a funeral from uh, a family from up in St. Mary's. And uh, they hadn't come near church at all. <clears throat> But they all decided, one Sunday, two, we had pews then, two pew loads of them, all decided to turn up. And as I went into uh, the pulpit then, I looked and I thought, oh no, this is Job. And I'm preaching about death, 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 and more death, mega death. And it was just, it seemed totally inappropriate. And afterwards, one of the relatives who I'd had quite a bit of banter with, Uh, He was cheekier even than me. As we're going out the door, he said, you did that deliberately, didn't you? I said, what do you mean? He says, just because we don't come to church. He said, you gave us a whole year's sermons in one go. And I said, no, I normally speak for that long. He says, I've never listened to anyone talk for more than five minutes in my life. I said, how did you cope with it? Oh, he says, thought it was brilliant. Didn't realize there was that much in the Bible. I said, that was only one chapter. There's thousands more. Will you be back? No. (laughs) But... He was right, though. There's so much, so much that's in God's Word, and there's an awful lot in this. Let me first of all set this in a couple of contexts. Firstly, this is a letter written by a fisherman called Peter, who became what we call an apostle, one of the leaders of the early church. It's written about 30 years after the death of Jesus. It's probably written from Rome. Because Peter says that it's from Babylon, and that was a a name that Christians used for the Roman Empire, which, although they lived in it, they regarded it as oppressive. And it was written to Christians scattered all over the Mediterranean who were being oppressed in different ways, particularly because they lived in a hostile and confused pluralistic culture. We don't live in a Christian culture. And those of you who are Christians and say we've got to preserve Christianity, we don't live in a Christian culture. We live in a desperately needy society and what people need more than anything else is the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you saw the headline yesterday. Ten people in Tayside last month died from drugs overdose. Uh, Nine in Dundee. You're talking about two people a week in Dundee killing themselves with heroin, cocaine, whatever. It really is unbelievably sad. And you know, and you yourself may experience this, but you certainly know people who are in despair, who are sick, who are confused, who are unemployed, who are arrogant, who are angry. When I was in hospital for that period of time, You do get to talk to people. I will leave out the conversations I had when I was in ICU because I don't remember them and apparently some of the things I said 
were really ridiculous. I didn't believe it until uh, my family had helpfully kept all the notebooks that I furiously scribbled in. My greatest embarrassment is that I did actually write down, I want to see Justin Bieber. Um, <laughs> that, that shows you how ill I was. It was really, I can't believe it's there in writing. I'm going, I wrote that? I want to see Justin. Why would I want to see Justin Bieber? But you do get, you meet a lot of people who are really hurt. Obviously, they're physically ill or they wouldn't be there. But you meet nursing staff who are angry and wounded and confused. You meet doctors. Uh, one doctor said to me, I just don't know what the point of everything is. You meet Christians, people who profess faith in Jesus Christ, and you may be in this category, who are losing sight of Jesus Christ, who are feeling spiritually dead, who are doubting, who are fearful. That's nothing new. That's why Peter wrote this letter, and it's a letter that comes to us as well. And I've entitled it Three uh, But Now, because he's saying, this is what it's like, but now. And I want you to see what the, the but now is in, in this passage that we look at. First of all, he says, since you've become a Christian, now you pray. Since you call on a father who judges each, man, each man's work impartially. I was asked by one of the nurses, do you pray every night? And I said, I can't answer that question. Because it's like you asking me, do you talk to your wife every night? Do you understand how the question doesn't make sense to me? Because it's not just at particular set times or in particular methods that we pray. It should be, and certainly we have available to us at any time, the opportunity to pray to God. And one of the definitions of a Christian is someone who calls on a father. Fascinating description for God. God as father. And he says, you pray. And because you pray, and because you have God as father, then your every day is wonderful, every day is beautiful. You skip along going, hey, Jesus, isn't everything fantastic? You're full of joy. He doesn't say that. He says that because... God is your father, you live your life in reverent awe and fear. Now, because I'm officially signed off work, and I try not to work, um, I've spent far too much time on Facebook and on the internet. And there are people who write me. And there was one Christian lady, and Christians sometimes get really angry. She was really angry with me for saying that we should fear God. She said, as a Christian, I don't fear Jesus at all. To which I responded, well, you're not much of a Christian, which wasn't very subtle, and we then got into a conversation. But she was really upset about this notion of fearing God. Well, in one sense, she was right, because her understanding of what fear is, is an understanding that most people would have, kind of craven, cowardliness, uh-oh, God's going to beat me up. But that's not what is spoken of here. Here, it's the idea of awe. It's the idea of respect. It's the idea of reverence. And forgive again the personal reference, but uh, it is really strange. When you've been in hospital, you don't know how ill you are and how close you've come to death. And you know, the interesting thing is, there's a sense in which that having happened to me has made me 
fear and respect life a whole lot more. You see, most of you are young enough to think, I'm going to live forever. Most of you are young enough to think, you know, I'll just do this and I'll do that. And you don't realize how weak we are. The last time I was here speaking, it was Claire and Steve's wedding. And during it, I knew that there was something not right because I was in a cold sweat and it wasn't just like a sign saying, don't get married, don't get married. No, it was, it was a beautiful wedding. It was a great wedding. But as you know, I went out and eventually collapsed and so on. I didn't know that that was wrong. I didn't know what was going on in my body. I had no awareness of these things. We are actually all incredibly weak. Our life is but a breath. When you're on a ventilator and you can't breathe, you know that life is as fragile as a breath. And what that does is it gives you an awe and a respect for life. Things that you took for granted, like fresh air, like water, like ice cubes, things like that, you, you, you suddenly have a far greater awareness of and respect for. It actually makes you more alive and more appreciative. And that's what's being said here. When you know who Jesus Christ is, when you know God the Father through Jesus Christ, you fear him. You fear him because he is so great and he is so wonderful that it takes your breath away and it stops a casual approach to God. You live your lives here as strangers in reverent fear. The, the, the Greek word here is the word parochia from which we get the term parochial. Parochial means that we just think about ourselves. We're only looking at ourselves. We don't see a world beyond. I loved it when I was uh, in Fife one time. And I was in the village of Kinglassie preaching. And this lady said to me, I said to her, are you from here? And she says, oh no son. And I love it when someone calls me son. But oh no son, she says. I've only lived here 50 years. Which made me smile. She was 90. I said, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Cardenden. Which was two miles up the road. And I just thought, I just thought that was lovely. Uh, She's so identified. But you can become quite parochial in that sense. But here, it's, that's actually the very opposite of the Greek meaning parochial, because it means that you've got a, such a wide view of the world and of life and of the universe that you realize you're just passing through, that this is not the end. If you see things from the eternal perspective, everything changes. If you see only the here and now, you end up either in denial, deliberately shutting your eyes, ears and heart, or you end up discouraged and depressed because of the sheer banality of evil and the stifling boredom of the trivial. If you live only for the now, then you, 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 you live, even, even in the now, such a pathetic life. And here what we're being told is we're living as those who are on a journey. We are going somewhere. You will appreciate life a whole lot more when you realize how valuable you are. I did a program for the BBC this week, or at least an interview for the BBC, on the question of work and redundancy. And one of the problems in our culture with work is its value. Who are you? My name is David. I'm a minister. Why is that important? Why is that always the second thing that we say about ourselves? It's like in uh, the film Gladiator, you know, that tremendous scene where um, Russell Crowe reveals himself as 
I was going to say Spartacus, but he's not Spartacus, whatever he was again. You know, and he starts listening. I'm commander of the army. I'm the husband of a murdered wife and, and so on. Who are we? What gives us value? In our culture, it's very often what we do. And that's why we've got the scandal about the banker's pay and bonuses, which people justify by saying, well, we have to offer the best money to get the best people. Well, do you know this? I would rather personally have a really good nurse than have a really good banker. I'm not saying that bankers are not important. They are important. But is that how we determine people's value by what we pay them? Here, we are told that we are redeemed not with silver or gold, but we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. In the Roman Empire, there were 50 million slaves. You could buy your freedom or someone else could buy your freedom with silver and gold. Paul says to the, Peter says rather to the Christians, you are so precious that you were bought with something that silver and gold could not buy. Now I want to back off a little bit as we look at this and say, hang on a minute. What if, what if you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't need to be redeemed. I'm not a slave. Well, look at that extraordinary verse where he says, you were, <clears throat> in verse 18, you know it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down by your forefathers. This world is full of emptiness. You travel on the bus, you lie in a hospital ward, you're at your work. What is your life but empty if all that you're concerned about is what's on the television at night or that you've just got what you're going to be eating or drinking? Human culture, says Ed Clowney, preserves the past to structure the present. I find it incredibly ironic that Christians often present the gospel as a means of preserving the past. No, it's not. The gospel is a way of challenging the past and of challenging the present. I don't know if you have ever had that sense of emptiness and depression and discouragement and senselessness and meaninglessness. I have, and I see it all the time in our culture. You see in people's eyes the mirror of the soul. You see the pain and the sorrow and the hopelessness. And I actually don't have a problem in understanding why people take drugs. I actually have a problem in understanding why more people don't take drugs. Because it's a form of escape from the emptiness and the shallowness. And because people think there is no value in life and I am not valued. Jesus came to save us from that. That's what he's saying. He was chosen, killed, raised from the dead and glorified so that we could have life, so that we could believe in God. Look at the end bit there of those verses. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. A lot of us, or at least I do anyway, have philosophical and scientific arguments and intellectual arguments about why we believe in God. Do you know this? They're not worth a scooby, really, in comparison with Jesus Christ. It's through Jesus Christ that we believe in God. Because of this one man raised from the dead who was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. I was asked yesterday, give us some evidence for God. Very simple. Two-word answer. Jesus Christ, the absolute and the total evidence. He gave himself, he gave his blood, 
His death was sacrificial. His death was substitutionary. It's no wonder that we call on him, that we worship him, that we have faith and hope. I don't know how valuable you think you are, but you will never ever have such value, even in your own eyes or in other people's eyes, than the value of the Son of God loving you and giving himself for you. Sometimes you feel like dirt. Sometimes you feel completely miserable. Sometimes you feel totally overwhelmed. Sometimes you feel despised and rejected and hurt. It's why you need Jesus Christ. Because you will see then that he values you more than anything that money can buy. Let's go on to the next few verses. Verses 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth... So that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. That's the second now. The first now is that you you pray. Now you pray and look who you pray to and why you pray. Second is now you're purified. I love the word pure. I think it's a great Scottish word, a great Glaswegian word. When, you know, Glaswegians, ah, oh, that's pure dead brilliant. But it's, an, it's, it's a Dundonian word. You have to, if you're going to learn Dundonian, pure comes right at the very top of the vocabulary. That's a pure chair. I heard someone say that to you. That's a pure chair. That's pure this and pure that. And I just thought, I, I love that word. It has a, obviously a different meaning. We want to be pure, but what does that mean? Let me put it this way. There is something horrible, something ugly, something dirty about us. You may say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not like that, I'm not like that. Yes, you are, and I am. It's what the Bible calls sinfulness, and it runs really, really deep. It's why we do the evil we don't want to do, and we do not do the good that we want to do. There is within us, this heart of darkness. Who is going to rescue us, says Paul, from the body of sin? How can we be cleansed, healed, restored, and forgiven? How can we be made pure? And the answer is given in the passage that's up on the screen there. By obeying the truth. And again, I stop just for a minute. Because there's an enormous danger we understand that. When you hear the word obedience, many of you think, okay, big checklist, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to do this other thing. But that's not the truth that's spoken of here. The truth of the Bible tells you this. There's nothing you can do that would make God love you. Nothing that you can do. Not a thing. You can go and live as near perfect a life as you possibly can. And it's still not enough. Because it doesn't deal with the darkness within So what does it mean to obey the truth? Well, what is the truth? The truth is the truth about Jesus Christ. The obedience is believing what Jesus has done and accepting and following him. It's stopping trying to make your own way. It's stopping beating yourself up. It's stopping trying to be religious in order to make yourself acceptable. It's stopping making constant New Year's resolutions, which if you made them every single day, it still wouldn't make any difference. 
It's recognizing that your situation is so bad that you can't make yourself better. I'm a very independent person. And there's a danger with that that I become a very self-righteous and proud and arrogant person. When you're lying on a hospital bed, you can't even go to the toilet. You have to press a buzzer to ask someone to come and to clean you and to enable you to go. When you can't speak, when you're so used to being able to tell people what to do, and you can't. When you can't work it all through yourself, you're in a position there where your life is completely in someone else's hand. I wasn't lying there when they were operating going, no, no, drill somewhere else. That's not good. How about doing this? How about doing that? You're completely in the hands of someone else. Well, you're here this morning, and whatever your personal circumstances, you never really grasp Christianity if you keep thinking, yeah, if I do this, God will do this. If I do that, if only someone else did this, if only the church was this, you have to look not to yourself, but to Christ. And that's what obedience is, just saying, yeah, I believe, I accept. I, I, I trust what Jesus has done. And you see the result of that up there, that you love one another deeply from the heart, that you have a sincere love. Incidentally, let me just point out how love and truth go together. The devil keeps trying to separate them. There are Christians who say, I'm really into love, and others who say, I'm really into truth. You can't be into one without being into the other. You see, so much of what we call love isn't love at all. It's shallow, it's superficial, it's selfish. But this is something different. We love him because he first loved us. We love with the love of Christ. The world tells us in reality that there's no such thing as love, that we're just chemicals and chemical reactions. But the gospel, the good news, tells us that there's a whole lot more. But how does that happen? How do I get that love? How can I share that love? How can I love the unlovable? How can I love myself? How can I love God who I can't even see? Surely that's going to require a completely new beginning, a completely new life. Exactly. Verse 23. For you have been born again. We are born again. How? Through the living and enduring word of God. The gospel comes home to us. The spirit applies us. It's like a seed. I was walking in Baxter Park yesterday and uh, it's great to see the snowdrops coming out. Just tiny. Just seeds that are beginning to show life. And that's what this book is. The word of God. It's not the lecture. It's not the living or rather the dead history book. It's a living word. It's, it brings life. All men are like grass. We're like the flowers of the field. We are so weak. We are just a breath. All our glory is like the flowers of the field. It is meaningless without the word of God. By the way, let me say this to those of you who are Christians. I think there's a famine of hearing the word of God. And I think there's a famine within the church of hearing the word of God. That Christians kind of... We want to say, well, we need the Spirit and we need life. And they don't necessarily associate that with the Bible. I don't know how many people I've watched in the past few months who tell us lots of stories about what's happened to them and lots of moralistic teachings and who kind of go to the destination. They talk about community. They talk about love. 
But they never bring the word of God to us. They say, oh yeah, 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 the Bible, the Bible, the Bible. I want the feeling, I want the end product. But the end product only comes through the life. And the life comes from the seed. And the seed is the word of God being sown into our lives. This, he says, is the word that was preached to you. That's why it's so valuable. Let's just go on to the last section we're going to look at. Just take a couple of minutes. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit. This is chapter 2, verse 1. Hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let's work backwards on this one. You've tasted that the Lord is good. How do you taste? Here's an interesting experiment. I've done this lots of times in philosophy groups and so on. Describe to me the taste of coffee. No one has ever been able to do that. You try describing the taste of coffee without mentioning coffee. It's just impossible. Eventually you're going to say, I give up. Go to the back, help yourself, taste it, see what it's like. We, um, it was Annabelle's birthday this week and we were really posh. We even, we went to the Pete Inn. Now, uh, word of advice to any of the guys here. If you're single and you're going out with a girl and you want to pop the question, that is get married, by the way, just in case. Um, Pete Inn's going to win it for you any time. You have to save up a lot, but it was just, it was it's fantastic. And what they've got in that is they've got a taster menu. Now, it's a bit beyond my pay grade, but it would be a great thing to do one time. And the idea is that you taste several different dishes. And it's extraordinary, even the, the kind of normal meal that we had. You put it in your mouth and you're going, wow. We had friends with us and they were, oh, that's gorgeous. Just little amounts. You know, I think of a feast as a massive big Ulster fry-up or something. You know, it's a feast. No, no, this was a feast. But it was, it was small amounts, but exquisite in terms of its taste. The Bible uses that idea in terms of knowing God. I don't know if you've ever seen the film Babette's Feast, but you must see it. It's a Danish film, but it's absolutely priceless. I'll not do a plot spoiler about the whole thing, but it's uh, about a Danish fishing village which is kind of dirt and miserable and quite austere, very religious. Everyone's dressed in black. Um, it, it, it doesn't create the greatest impression in the world, but there's something real and very warm and sincere about the people as well. And Babette is a French servant who asks to be able to cook a feast. And she cooks a meal that's worth thousands of pounds. She uses money that she's been given. And they just go through. It's a film about them eating this feast. You think, ah, not much plot in there. But actually it is. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful understanding of the gospel. There is the taste and the extravagance and the beauty of Babette's feast. That is like the gospel for us. Let me explain it another way. Uh, the dreadful words, nil by mouth. I was on nil by mouth for several weeks. And I was begging for anything. Give me an ice cube. Get, let me drink something. Let me, and eventually I was told, you can have two sips of water and some food. And I was going, yes, I'm getting. Do you know what they gave me? A spoonful, and I mean a literal spoonful, of ambrosia creamed rice. I hate ambrosia creamed rice. And that was the first thing I was given. But do you know this? It tasted like nectar. I absolutely loved it. 
The next day, I thought they'll give me some more. They did. They gave me a tub of ambrosia cream grass. I said, please let me move on from the ambrosia. But even then, it tasted good. Because I hadn't had anything. Do you know, maybe you're like this. Maybe you're starving. But the people around us are starving in so many ways. There's a deep hunger and longing within. Something which all the junk food in this world will not satisfy. But Christ prepares us with a wonderful feast. And we taste it. And when you taste it, you, you, it's not the end. You know, those of you who are Christians say, Oh, I remember when I became a Christian, I was so full of the love of God. And now I've backslidden. Or now I've grown cold. Or now I'm not near Jesus. I, I, I want to say to you, you only tasted When you became a Christian, that was only the beginning. There's so much more. You taste and see the goodness of the Lord. We have this image of God sometimes as the guy who puts a dangle something in front of us and then pulls it away. When he says, I have a feast for you that you cannot even contemplate, that you cannot even stand. You have no idea how much and how deep my love is for you. As a newborn baby, you crave pure spiritual milk. I know that sometimes the sound of babies in the church here can be a wee bit annoying. But I'll tell you what's an even worse sound is the sound of no babies would be absolutely awful. I actually love that when you hear a baby cry and they want food and they get food. I think one of the problems we've got in the church is we've lost our spiritual appetite. This hunger, this craving for pure spiritual milk. Quickly, pure, again that word, nothing added is what it means. It's not diluted and nothing is added to it. There are no spiritual e-numbers. How many mistakes have been made by Christians who want to jazz up the Bible a bit or water it down a bit? Oh, they won't like that, let's water it down. Or that's a bit dull, let's spice it up. When you try and add to the Bible, you take away from it. When you take away from the Bible in order to make it more palatable for people, you're taking away from Jesus Christ and making it more sickly. We are given the word of God. It fits within our context. Its word, the verses up there tell us, God's word has life, gives life, nourishes life. It's milk, it's bread, it's honey, it's meat. I was going to say that I feel like a chef bringing, cooking a meal for you from God's word. But I'm not actually. The master chef is God. All that I am is a waiter, serving you what God has prepared. We have this spiritual food. We have this love. We have this faith and hope. We have this new birth. And therefore, and it's only therefore, that's what the therefore refers to. We get rid of malice, which is general, is wickedness, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. You'll note the order. You don't say, I'm going to stop being wicked. I'm going to stop slandering. I'm going to stop being hypocritical. I'm going to become this kind of person. Then I'll get to know Jesus. You come to Jesus with all your sin and you get to know him. And then you get rid of these things. And that's why, or the reason why is you don't have time for it. It's poison. When you've been served this wonderful spiritual food why take junk food do you really hate yourself that much why feed yourself with junk food i want to read to you uh, a letter i got from someone on the other side of the world 
who I don't know how they, I think through the website, through St. Pete's website or Solas or something, contacted me and said this. I've just watched your presentation this evening. On the inspiration of it, I'm going to pray to Jesus as if I know him personally, as if he is a personal God who is willing to forgive me yet again, as if he is a personal God who is interested in my life, as if he is a God that answers my prayers. I'm going to ask him to help me out of the hole that my life seems to have recently fallen into. I am struck by your emphasis on knowing Jesus, although this is by no means a new notion to me. I have heard about this notion many times over many years. I can see how having a personal knowledge of Jesus could make all the difference between adhering to a religion and having a life-transforming faith. I do not know Jesus. And then these words, I've been a Christian for 17 years now. I made a decision as a 27-year-old in the context of a Pentecostal church. How do I get to know Jesus? I don't know Jesus. I've been a Christian for 17 years. Do you know there are some of you and you're sitting here and you say you're a Christian and you don't know Jesus. And that's absolutely heartbreaking. And sometimes I think about that in terms of, you know, myself. I think about it in different things. You think about it in terms of relatives. You think about it in terms of friends, people whom you really love. And that question just burns. How do I get to know Jesus? Well, there are a lot of things I'm uncertain of. A lot of things I'm not sure about, even in the Bible, that I don't understand or grasp. But I'm absolutely certain of this, that anyone who truly wants to know Jesus and ask him and ask God, who of you? Fathers, if your children ask for bread, we'll give them a stone. How much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I don't know Jesus. How do I know Jesus? You know him through his word. So I come back to where I came in and I finish with this. I honestly do believe that Christ saved me for a purpose. Not because I'm special. Not because I'm anything. Not because I'm strong. But because he is gracious and he is loving. And he desires people to know him. He is the one who seeks and who saves the lost. And it's because of that that he's brought you here today as well. And now, you have to decide what you do. This is now what has happened, but you have to decide what you will do. Will you turn away from the only doctor who can heal you? Will you go your own way? Or will you go the sad ways and lonely routes offered by our culture? Or will you live for Jesus Christ as part of his body, the church? So... It's kind of like a no-brainer, really. Choose life. Choose Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we've just really skimmed over the surface of this small part of your word. And yet, even in so doing, we have glimpsed the wonderful riches that are in there. We call on you as a just father, a just judge, who judges each man's work impartially. We call on you as the one who has given your son. How valuable are we? You gave us Jesus. You died for us. It is utterly, completely, mind-blowingly astonishing 
that anyone could love us that much, especially a pure and just and holy God. But you have done so. And you've sent us your words so that we're not left to to our own speculations or imaginations or experience even. But you've sent your word and it's not a dead word. It's a word that comes from the Holy Spirit, that is applied by the Holy Spirit, that is itself, within itself, contains the life of God, that as we hear it, it takes root within our beings and produces fruit. Lord, we thank you that you have granted us that. Grant that we may have spiritual appetite, that we would crave and long for your word as those who have been without food for many days and suddenly we get to taste and see. May we taste and see that you are good. Lord, if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, our hearts break for them and we ask that they would just call out to you that the door is open for them. And for those of us who do, Lord, we confess that some of us have grown cold and disillusioned and cynical and hard-hearted. We have become ill spiritually. Lord, heal us, restore us and renew us. Take our eyes away from ourselves or the sins of other people or the foolishness of your church and enable us to look to Christ, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. For we ask it in your name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of Solace the Centre for Public Christianity at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.